2: In 2013, in the spring semester of college, 20-year-old Alicia Wiley suddenly vanished. She was last seen on surveillance footage at her college campus getting into a car that belonged to her older boyfriend from high school. With little physical evidence in this case, investigators struggled to initially find a suspect in her disappearance. But when new evidence emerges that points to Alicia being a victim of murder, the police realize They don't have to look too far for their number one suspect. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library podcast. This is the story of the callous murder of Alicia Wiley. Alicia Marie Wiley, also affectionately known by her family members as Lily, Lee Lee, was just twenty years old at the time of her murder. She was a young woman with style, drive, ambition, and a vivacious nature about her. She was a native of New Haven, Connecticut, and she had worked hard to earn her presidential scholarship to Eastern Connecticut State University. She was enrolled at the university as a psychology major, and in the spring of twenty thirteen, Alicia was just a sophomore, preparing to take her finals. On April 20th, 2013, Alicia never showed up to meet one of her best friends at the dorm, which was strange because shortly before they were set to meet, Alicia texted her best friend agreeing to meet up. So it wasn't like she could have forgotten about the plans. It wasn't until after the weekend when Alicia's family and friends really became concerned about her whereabouts. When she didn't show up for her Monday classes her family decided to get the police involved. Campus security contacted the Connecticut State Police to help them with Alicia's missing persons case. Investigators canvassed the campus, spoke with Alicia's friends, classmates, and her professors, hoping they could get some information about where she could have disappeared to, or maybe her state of mind before she went missing. Initially, searches near the area where Alicia lived were conducted but nothing ever turned up in those areas. So, for investigators, the next obvious step was to check out the campus surveillance footage of the day she went missing. Thanks to the surveillance footage, the investigators were able to track Alicia's movements, which showed her on the morning of Saturday, April 19th, leaving Oakham Hall, then waiting outside the building until she got inside an unidentified black car that pulled up. To detectives, it seemed that Alicia was familiar with the person picking her up. They soon learned from her family that Alicia had recently been in contact with her boyfriend, who she dated while in high school. His name was Jermaine Richards and he was 30 years old at the time and was a private duty nurse. The relationship between Alicia and Jermaine was actually once a secret. She had kept the relationship from her mother because she knew her mom would disapprove of the age gap. When they first started seeing each other, Jermaine was almost 22 years old and Alicia was 17 and a half. When her mother eventually found out, she of course did not approve of the relationship. But she knew that if she pressed her daughter not to see Jermaine, it would only push Alicia closer to Jermaine. So instead, Alicia's mother warned her to be careful, not to get distracted and to focus on her studies. Investigators reviewed the surveillance footage one more time and they were able to confirm That the unidentified black vehicle actually belonged to Alicia's boyfriend, Jermaine. The next step was to question him about Alicia's disappearance. When questioned, Jermaine Richards told police that he picked up Alicia from campus on Saturday and then drove an hour and a half to his mother's house in Bridgeport, Connecticut. According to him, the day was rather uneventful. It was pretty normal. He also told police that he dropped Alicia off back at campus that Saturday night. Shortly before 11 p.m., he claimed to have dropped her off at a Dairy Queen located about two blocks from the main gate of the campus. He said that after dropping her off, he drove back home to Bridgeport. Jermaine also told the police that he hadn't heard from Alicia since that Saturday night, and his mother confirmed his story about what happened that day, too. Investigators searched Jermaine's car, but no evidence turned up from the search. They were also able to obtain Jermaine's cell phone data. Which could tell investigators about Jermaine's movements that night. The data showed that phone tower pings confirmed Jermaine's accounts of his whereabouts when Alicia disappeared. This information forced detectives to move on to other possible persons of interest. No longer looking at Jermaine Richards, police interviewed hundreds of people on campus for leads, but nothing really came of it. So investigators began theorizing that maybe Alicia was abducted by a stranger after Jermaine dropped her off that night. After all, it was almost 11 p.m., which means it was dark and she was out alone at night. Also, Jermaine dropped her off two blocks away from the campus gates, which would mean if someone did want to abduct her, they definitely had two blocks to do it. Police also checked the sex offender registry for leads, but this didn't move the investigation forward either. Another avenue for investigators was to check out Alicia's cell phone data for any clues. And what they found was interesting. In a text to her friend on the day she went missing, Alicia said she wanted to break up with Jermaine. According to her friend, this text wasn't that surprising because she knew Alicia had become more interested in meeting new men since she had started college. The last text from Alicia's phone was around 11 p.m. The text to her friend read, It's over. I'm coming over. I need a drink. End quote. But Alicia never showed up, and her phone activity ended with that last text message. Another set of messages that interested investigators were texts between Alicia and a former boyfriend on the day she went missing. The two had exchanged text messages around 4.30 p.m. on April 20th. In the messages, Investigators learned that the two made plans to meet that day. Police questioned this guy, and he expressed concern about Alicia, wondering what happened to her because he hadn't heard from her since Saturday afternoon. Police thought that maybe he could have had something to do with Alicia's disappearance. However, this man had an alibi that checked out for the night Alicia went missing. He was working his shift at a restaurant in New Haven that night, so he couldn't have been responsible for Alicia's disappearance. So investigators circled back to her relationship with Jermaine Richards. And when interviewing Alicia's friends, investigators were shocked to find out that her friends didn't really know much about her boyfriend. When investigators continued interviews with Alicia's family and friends, they were alarmed by a statement Alicia's sister shared. She told police about a troubling incident that happened before Alicia went missing. She said that Alicia had reached out to her during the night to come get her because Jermaine had been violent with her and tried to strangle her. Apparently, incidents like that occurred more than once in their relationship. However, Alicia struggled to end the relationship, which we know isn't all too uncommon. Some victims of abuse are scared that worse will happen to them if they leave. Or sometimes victims can't see how they can make it financially without their abuser, which causes them to stay in the relationship longer than they should. There's also shaming and manipulation from abusers, Some claim they will ruin the victim's life or reputation if they leave. Or they play mind games and convince the victim they can't do any better. There are so many reasons why a person might stay in an abusive relationship. Investigators knew this, and they became worried that maybe Alicia's decision to leave the relationship came too late.
0: spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a pilates class or outdoor guided walk peloton has everything you need to help you get going get a head start on summer with peloton at onepeloton.com
1: hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues
2: After learning about the couple's volatile relationship, investigators asked Germain to come in for questioning again, but he refused. So instead, they directed their focus for the search for Alicia through retracing the route Germain Richards drove on April 20th, 2013. A breakthrough in the case finally came about a month after Alicia was reported missing. By midday, investigators had made a startling discovery that would end up solving the case, On May 17, 2013, a decomposing arm, ankle, and leg were found in the woods at the end of Quarry Road in Trumbull Bridgeport, a mile and a half away from Jermaine's house. Eventually, DNA confirmed the remains belonged to Alicia Wiley. It was evident that Alicia Wiley was no longer a missing person, but had been the victim of a homicide. The question now became for the police, what happened to the rest of Alicia's body? What the police learned next was horrifying. The medical examiner revealed that Alicia's body had been dismembered. According to the medical examiner, quote, "remains had been disarticulated by an edged instrument. It wasn't a saw, it wasn't an axe, it was a knife." End quote. This information raised eyebrows for investigators. They knew that Jermaine Richards had some nursing experience, which gave him knowledge of human anatomy. This could explain how Alicia's body was treated. On May 17, 2013, the police obtained an arrest warrant for Jermaine Richards. During the trial, prosecutors focused mostly on the history of domestic violence between Jermaine and Alicia to make their case because there was a lack of physical evidence in this case. There was no blood residue or anything to show where or when Alicia was killed, no eyewitnesses and no confession from Jermaine, so his violent history with Alicia was all they really had to lean on. The state rested on the claim that Jermaine had the motive and the opportunity to kill Alicia. Alicia's family testified that Jermaine had a jealous and possessive nature. A one of Alicia's sisters testified about the incident where Alicia called her in a panic asking her to come get her after Jermaine had become violent. She told the court that Alicia told her, quote, "He put me in a headlock and threw me on the bed and I couldn't breathe." End quote. The prosecution also called a high school classmate of Jermaine Richards to testify that Jermaine told him he was upset because he believed Alicia had been messing around with an old friend. The classmate informed the court That Jermaine told him, She doesn't know who she is messing with. I'm a nurse and I know how to get rid of her. Jermaine pleaded not guilty and did not testify during the trial. By late 2017, Jermaine Richards was found guilty, and by March 2018, he was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Two prior juries had actually deadlocked on a verdict before this final verdict. Most likely, the lack of physical evidence made jurors unsure about Jermaine's culpability in Alicia's murder. Unfortunately, throughout the trial process, Alicia's mother, Corinna Martin, had to sit through all three trials. And during one of the worst moments in her life, she had no idea she would have to suffer another loss. It would turn out that Corinna Martin's eldest daughter, was also killed from a similar domestic-type homicide. Before Alicia's family was scheduled to appear in court for the third time, Corinna's eldest daughter, Shakwanikwa, met a man online, Anthony Rutherford. As with the case with Alicia's boyfriend, the family did not like him, but they wanted to let her lead her life. It was during jury selection for the third trial for Alicia's case that Corinna learned her other daughter, Shakwaniqua Brody, who was 29, and her 9-year-old granddaughter, Mojea Richardson, had been murdered by Shakwaniqua's former boyfriend in their Waterbury apartment. Six months after Jermaine Richards' conviction, the Martin family was back in court where Rutherford pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 80 years without the possibility of parole. While Corinna Martin was grieving her daughters, Jermaine Richards was back in court because in 2021, Jermaine's attorneys filed for an appeal. Jermaine Richards' attorney, Norman Mattis, said during Jermaine's appeal before the state Supreme Court, quote, The Supreme Court rarely hears sufficiency of evidence claims. This one is significant, because the trial court was presented with no evidence on the mechanism of death. It was entirely a matter of speculation how the victim died, even to press to the point its logical extreme whether she did in fact die at the hands of another. At most, the jury could conclude that the victim likely died. There was simply no way to conclude that Mr. Richards killed her, and that if he did, whether his actions were intentional, reckless, or negligent. End quote. However, in 2021, the Connecticut Supreme Court upheld Jermaine Richards' conviction, rejecting arguments that there was not sufficient evidence. Following the tragedies of her two daughters' murders, Corinna tried to create a national violent offenders registry. She is currently the president of a nonprofit organization that she co-founded with her eldest daughter, Shaquaniqua Brody, called Mothers of Victims Equality. It was founded to help prevent domestic abuse and support victims. Corinna hopes to continue her eldest daughter's life's work so that other families can be saved from similar pains that she has had to endure.